This show is created for adult audiences only. Our show notes include content warnings and other helpful information. We strongly recommend taking a moment to assess the situation before continuing. Let's begin. Episode 115 The Watcher In June 2014, Derek Broadus had just finished an evening of painting at his new home in Westfield, New Jersey, when he went outside to check the mail. Derek and his wife, Maria, had closed on the six-bedroom house at 657 Boulevard three days earlier and were doing some renovations before they moved in. So there wasn't much in the mail except a few bills and a white, card-shaped envelope. It was addressed in thick, clunky handwriting to the new owner. And the typed note inside began warmly. Dearest new neighbor, 657 Boulevard. Allow me to welcome you to the neighborhood. For the Broadduses, buying 657 Boulevard had fulfilled a dream. Maria was raised in Westfield, and the house was a few blocks from her childhood home. Derek grew up working class in Maine, then moved his way up the ladder at an insurance company in Manhattan to become a senior vice president, with a salary large enough to afford the $315,000 house. The Broadduses had bought 657 Boulevard just after Derek celebrated his 40th birthday, and their three kids were already debating which of the house's fireplaces Santa Claus would use. But as Derek kept reading the letter from his new neighbor, it took a turn. How did you end up here? The writer asked. Did 657 Boulevard call to you with its force within? The letter went on. 657 Boulevard has been the subject of my family for decades now, and as it approaches its 110th birthday, I have been put in charge of watching and waiting for its second coming. My grandfather watched the house in the 1920s, and my father watched in the 1960s. It is now my time. Do you know the history of the house? Do you know what lies within the walls of 657 Boulevard? Why are you here? I will find out. The author's reconnaissance had apparently already begun. The letter identified the Broadus's Honda minivan, as well as the workers renovating the home. I see already that you have flooded 657 Boulevard with contractors, so that you can destroy the house as it was supposed to be. The person wrote, Tisk, tisk, tisk. Bad move. You don't want to make 657 Boulevard unhappy. Earlier in the week, Derek and Maria had gone to the house and chatted with their new neighbors while their children, who were 5, 8, and 10 years old, ran around the backyard with several kids from the neighborhood. The letter writer seemed to have noticed. 
You have children. I have seen them. So far, I think there are three that I have counted. The anonymous correspondent wrote, before asking if there were more on the way. Do you need to fill the house with the young blood I requested? Better for me. Was your old house too small for the growing family? Or was it greed to bring me your children? Once I know their names, I will call to them and draw them to me. The envelope had no return address. Who am I? The person wrote. There are hundreds and hundreds of cars that drive by 657 Boulevard each day. Maybe I am in one. Look at all the windows you can see from 657 Boulevard. Maybe I am in one. Look out any of the many windows in 657 Boulevard at all the people who stroll by each day. Maybe I am one. The letter concluded with a suggestion that this message would not be the last. Welcome, my friends. Welcome. Let the party begin. Followed by a signature typed in a cursive font. The Watcher. It was after 10 p.m., and Derek Broadus was alone. He raced around the house, turning off lights so no one could see inside, then called the Westfield Police Department. An officer came to the house, read the letter, and said, What the fuck is this? He asked Derek if he had enemies, and recommended moving a piece of construction equipment from the back porch, in case the watcher tried to toss it through a window. Derek rushed back to his wife and kids, who were living in their old house elsewhere in Westfield. That night, Derek and Maria wrote an email to John and Andrea Woods, the couple who sold them 657 Boulevard, to ask if they had any idea who the watcher might be, or why he or she had written. I asked the Woods to bring me young blood. Looks like they've listened. Andrea Woods replied the next morning, A few days before moving out, the Woodses had also received a letter from the Watcher. The note had been odd, she said, and made similar mention of the Watcher's family observing the house over time. But Andrea said she and her husband had never received anything like it in their 23 years in the house, and had thrown the letter away without much thought. That day, the Woodses went to Maria at the police station, where Detective Leonard Lugo told her not to tell anyone about the letters, including her new neighbors, most of whom she had never met, and all of whom were now suspects. The Broadduses spent the coming weeks on high alert. Derek canceled a work trip, and whenever Maria took the kids to their new house, she would yell their names if they wandered into a corner of the yard. When Derek gave a tour of the renovation to a couple on the block, he froze when the wife said, It'll be nice to have some young blood in the neighborhood. The Broadduses' general contractor arrived one morning to find that a heavy sign he'd hammered into the front yard had been ripped out overnight. Two weeks after the letter arrived, Maria stopped by the house to look at some paint samples and check the mail. She recognized the thick black lettering on a card-shaped envelope and called the police. Welcome again to your new home at 657 Boulevard, the watcher wrote. The workers have been busy, and I have been watching you unload carfuls of your personal belongings. The dumpster is a nice touch. Have they found what is in the walls yet? In time, they will. Had the watcher been close enough to hear one of the Broadus's contractors addressing them? The watcher boasted of having learned a lot about the family in the preceding weeks, especially about their children. 
the letter identified the Broadus' three kids by birth order and by their nicknames, the ones Maria had been yelling. I am pleased to know your names now, and the name of the young blood you have brought me, it said. You certainly say their names often. The letter asked about one child in particular, whom the writer had seen using an easel inside an enclosed porch. Is she the artist of the family? The letter continued. 657 Boulevard is anxious for you to move in. It has been years and years since the young blood ruled the hallways of the house. Have you found all of the secrets it holds yet? Will the young blood play in the basement? Or are they too afraid to go down there alone? I would be very afraid if I were them. It is far away from the rest of the house. If you were upstairs, you would never hear them scream. Will they sleep in the attic? Or will you all sleep on the second floor? Who has the bedrooms facing the street? I'll know as soon as you move in. It will help me to know who is in which bedroom. Then I can plan better. All of the windows and doors in 657 Boulevard allow me to watch you and track you as you move through the house. Who am I? I am the Watcher, and have been in control of 657 Boulevard for the better part of two decades now. The Woods family turned it over to you. It was their time to move on and quickly sold it when I asked them to. I pass by many times a day. 657 Boulevard is my job, my life, my obsession. And now you are too, Broadus family. Welcome to the product of your greed. Greed is what brought the past three families to 657 Boulevard, and now it has brought you to me. Have a happy moving in day. You know I will be watching. Derek and Maria stopped bringing their kids to the house. They were no longer sure when or if they would move in. Several weeks later, a third letter arrived. Where have you gone to? The watcher wrote. 657 Boulevard is missing you. Many Westfield residents compare their town to Mayberry, the idyllic setting for the Andy Griffith show, the kind of place where a new neighbor might greet you with a welcoming note. Westfield is 45 minutes from New York, and a bit too slow for singles, meaning the town's 30,000 residents are largely well-to-do families. In fact, this year, Bloomberg ranked Westfield the 99th richest city in America, the Broaddus' house was on the boulevard, a wide tree-lined street with some of the more beloved homes in town. As the watcher had noted, The boulevard used to be the street to live on. You made it if you lived on the boulevard. Built in 1905, 657 Boulevard was perhaps the grandest home on the block. And when the Woodses put it on the market, they had received multiple offers above their asking price. That led the Broadduses to initially suspect that the Watcher might be someone upset over losing out on the house. But the Woodses said one interested buyer had backed out after a bad medical diagnosis, while another had already found a different home. In an email to the Broadduses, Andrea Woods proposed another theory. Would the mention of the contractor trucks and your children suggest that it was someone in the neighborhood? 
The letters did indicate proximity. They had been processed in Kearney, the U.S. Postal Service's distribution center in northern New Jersey. The first was postmarked June 4th, before the sale was public. The Woodses had never put up a for sale sign, and only a day after the contractors arrived. The renovations were mostly interior, and people who lived nearby said they didn't notice any unusual commotion, even from the jackhammering in the basement. When Derek and Maria walked Detective Lugo around the house, they showed him that the easel on the back porch was hidden from the street by vegetation, making it difficult to see, unless someone was behind the house or right next door. A few days after the first letter, Maria and Derek went to a barbecue across the street, welcoming them and another new homeowner on the block. The Broadduses hadn't told anyone about the Watcher, as the police had instructed, and found themselves scanning the party for clues while keeping tabs on their kids, who ran carelessly through a crowd that made up much of the suspect pool. The concerned parents couldn't stop themselves from screaming at the children to stay close, no matter how absurd it made them look to their new neighbors. At one point, Derek was chatting with John Schmidt, who lived two doors down, when Schmidt told him about the Langfords, who lived between them. Peggy Langford was in her 90s, and several of her adult children, all in their 60s, lived with her. The family was a bit odd, Schmidt said, but harmless. He described one of the younger Langfords, Michael, who didn't work and had a beard like Ernest Hemingway, as a kind of Boo Radley character. Derek thought the case was solved. The Langford house was right next to the easel on the porch. The family had lived there since the 60s, when the watcher's father, the letter said, had begun observing 657 Boulevard. Richard Langford, the family patriarch, had died 12 years earlier, and the current watcher claimed to have been on the job for the better part of two decades. When the Broadduses told Lugo about the family, he said he already knew, and a week after the first letter arrived, he brought Michael Langford to police headquarters for an interview. Michael denied knowing anything about them, but the Broadduses said that Lugo told them that the narrative of what he said matched things mentioned in the letters. This isn't CSI Westfield, Lugo later told the Broadduses. When the wife is dead, it's the husband. But there wasn't much hard evidence, and after a few weeks, the police chief told the Broadduses that short of an admission, there wasn't much the department could do. While on some level Derek understood, he couldn't help but feel a little abandoned. After the second letter, Derek told the cops that if they didn't take care of the situation, they would have a different kind of case on their hands. Where Derek came from, you didn't let someone threaten your family and slide by. Frustrated, the Broadduses began their own investigation. Derek became especially obsessed. He set up webcams in 657 Boulevard and spent nights crouched in the dark, watching to see if anyone was watching the house at close range. He developed a full-blown file on the case, dozens of related documents, including copies of the letters, and a map displaying when each of 657's neighbors had moved in. The Langfords were the only ones there since the 60s, with overlays marking possible sight lines for the easel and a circle of the approximate range of earshot to estimate who might have heard Maria yelling at their kids. Only a few homes fit both criteria. The Broadduses also turned to several experts. They employed a private investigator who staked out the neighborhood and ran background checks on the Langfords, but didn't find anything noteworthy. 
Derek reached out to a former FBI agent, who served as the inspiration for Clarice Starling in The Silence of the Lambs. They were on a high school board of trustees together. And they also hired Robert Linehan, another former FBI agent, to conduct a threat assessment. Linehan recognized several old-fashioned ticks in the letters that pointed to an older writer. The envelope was addressed M-slash-M Broadus. The salutations included the day's weather, warm and humid, sunny and cool for a summer day. And the sentences had double spaces after them. The letters had a certain literary panache, which suggested a voracious reader, and a surprising lack of profanity given the level of anger which Linehan thought meant a less macho writer. Maybe, he wondered, the Watcher had seen The Watcher, starring Keanu Reeves as a serial killer who stalks the detective trying to catch him. Linehan didn't think The Watcher was likely to act on the threats, but the letters had enough typos and errors to imply a certain erraticism. There was also a seething anger directed at the wealthy in particular. The Watcher was upset by new money moving into town, Are you one of those Hoboken transplants who are ruining Westfield? And by the Broadus' relatively modest renovations. The house is crying from all the pain it is going through. You have changed it and made it so fancy. You are stealing its history. It cries for the past and what used to be in the time when I roamed its halls. The 1960s were a good time for 657 Boulevard. When I ran from room to room imagining the life with the rich occupants there. The house was full of life and young blood. Then it got old and so did my father. But he kept watching until the day he died. And now I watch and wait for the day when the young blood will be mine again. Linehan recommended looking into former housekeepers or their descendants. Perhaps the Watcher was jealous that the Broadduses had bought a home that the writer could never afford. But the focus remained on the Langfords. In cooperation with Westfield Police, the Broadduses sent a letter to them, announcing plans to tear down the house, hoping to prompt a response. Nothing happened. Detective Lugo brought Michael Langford in for a second interview, but got nowhere. And his sister Abby accused the police of harassing their family. Eventually, the Broadduses hired Lee Levitt, a lawyer, who met with several members of the Langford family, as well as their attorney, to show them the letters, along with photos explaining how their home was one of the few vantage points from which the easel could be seen. The meeting grew tense, and the Langfords insisted Michael was innocent. Derek began to have reoccurring dreams in which he confronted Peggy, the eldest Langford, and demanded she build an eight-foot fence between their properties. Maria had other kinds of dreams. One night she woke up to an especially vivid one about a man who lived nearby. He was wearing these boots and carrying a pitchfork and calling to the kids, and I couldn't get to them in time, she told Derek. She thought almost anyone could be the Watcher, which made daily life feel like navigating a labyrinth of threats. She probed the faces of shoppers at Trader Joe's to see if they looked strangely at her kids and spent hours googling anyone who seemed suspicious. There were reasons to consider other suspects. For one thing, the police spoke to Michael before the second letter was sent, which would make sending two more especially reckless. Then there was the rest of the neighborhood to consider. 
the private investigator found two child sex offenders within a few blocks. Bill Woodward, the Broadus' house painter, had also noticed something strange. The couple behind 657 Boulevard kept a pair of lawn chairs strangely close to the Broadus' property line. He once saw the old man sitting, facing the Broadus' home rather than his own. But by the end of 2014, the investigation had stalled. The watcher had left no digital trail, no fingerprints, and no way to place someone at the scene of the crime that could have been hatched from pretty much any mailbox in northern New Jersey. The letters could be read closely for possible clues, or dismissed as the nonsensical ramblings of a sociopath. It was like trying to find a needle in a haystack. In December, the Westfield police told the Broadduses they had run out of options. Derek showed the letters to his priest, who agreed to bless the house. The renovations to 657 Boulevard, including a new alarm system, were finished within a few months. But the idea of moving in filled the Broadduses with overwhelming anxiety. Could they let their kids play outside or have friends over? Would they get a new letter every week? Derek priced out trained German shepherds and posted a job on a website for military veterans. All you have to do is work out in the backyard every day. But the Broadduses hadn't bought 657 to feel bunkered in a fortress. To Maria, it was a simple case of risk assessment. Was putting their kids at risk really worth their dream home? Derek had been responding to occasional alarms at the house, sometimes in the middle of the night, bringing a knife with him just in case. Maria began to suffer from frequent crying fits. It didn't help that the watcher seemed to be getting more and more unhinged. 657 Boulevard is turning on me. It is coming after me. I don't understand why. What spell did you cast on it? It used to be my friend and now it is my enemy. I am in charge of 657 Boulevard. It is not in charge of me. I will fend off its bad things and wait for it to become good again. It will not punish me. I will rise again. I will be patient and wait for this to pass and for you to bring the young blood back to me. 657 Boulevard needs young blood. It needs you. Come back. Let the young blood play again like I once did. Let the young blood sleep in 657 Boulevard. Stop changing it and let it alone. The Broadduses had sold their old home, so they moved in with Maria's parents while continuing to pay the mortgage and property taxes on 657. They told only a handful of friends about the letters, which left others to ask why they weren't moving in. Legal issues, they said. And they wondered if they were getting divorced. They fought constantly, and started taking medication to fall asleep. A deep depression settled over Derek. Maria decided to see a therapist after a routine doctor's visit that began with the question, How are you? caused her to burst into tears. The therapist said she was suffering post-traumatic stress that wouldn't go away until they got rid of the house. Six months after the letters arrived, the Broadduses decided to sell 657 Boulevard. They initially listed it for more than they paid, to reflect the renovations they'd done. But few worlds are more gossipy than suburban New Jersey real estate, and rumors had already begun to swirl about why the house sat empty. One broker emailed to say her client loved it, 
but that there were so many unsubstantiated rumors flying around, ranging from sexual predator to stalker, that they needed to know more. The Broadduses sent a partial disclosure mentioning the letters to interested buyers, and told Coldwell Banker, their realtor, that they intended to show the full letters to anyone whose offer was accepted. Several preliminary bids came in well below the asking price, but the Broadduses just weren't ready to take such a financial hit, and only wanted to share the letters with likely buyers. No one got that far, even after they lowered the price. A Coldwell agent who hadn't read the letters told them in an email that they were being unnecessarily forthcoming. My friend got horrible threatening letters about her dog barking and she didn't think to disclose. But the Broadduses insisted. The couple agreed that they could never do to someone else what had been done to them. Derek and Maria thought about what they would have done had the previous owners told them about the letter from the Watcher. The Woodses, both retired scientists, told the Broadduses that they remembered the letter they received as more strange than threatening, thanking them for taking care of the house. They say they never had any issues, and that they certainly never felt watched. They rarely even locked the doors. But the Broadduses felt the name alone was ominous enough to merit mentioning to a new family moving in. And on June 2, 2015, a year after buying 657 Boulevard, they filed a legal complaint against the Woodses, arguing that they should have disclosed the letter, just as they had the fact that the water sometimes got into the basement. The Broadduses say they hope to reach a quiet settlement. Their kids still didn't know about the Watcher, and their lawyer assured them that at most a small legal newswire might pick up the story. A local reporter had found the complaint, which included snippets of the Watcher's menacing threats, and after a belated attempt by the Broadduses to seal it, the story went viral. News trucks camped out at 657 Boulevard, and one local reporter set up a lawn chair to conduct his own watch. The Broadduses got more than 300 media requests, but with advice from a crisis management consultant referred by one of Derek's colleagues, they decided not to speak publicly to spare their kids even more attention. They vacated Westfield and went to a friend's beach house. Eventually, Derek and Maria sat down with their children to explain the real reason they hadn't moved into their home. The kids had plenty of questions. Who is the watcher? Where does this person live? Why is this person angry with us? To which Derek and Maria had few answers. From a distance, they continued their own investigative efforts. They hired a retired detective for the Westfield Police, Baron Chablis, to dig deeper into the case. With a heavy focus on the Langfords, they pushed forward. They quickly discovered that Michael Langford had been diagnosed with schizophrenia early in life and had developed quite a reputation for disturbing new additions to the neighborhood. Just as they became convinced once again that the case was solved, Chablis got word from the Westfield Police that DNA had been recovered from one of the watcher's envelopes. It belonged to a woman. The focus shifted immediately to Michael's sister, Abby Langford. She was a real estate agent, and the idea of lost commission seemed as good a motive as any. But after some cloak-and-dagger maneuvers that led to a DNA comparison, it was clear that she was not the culprit. Not long after, the prosecutor's office gave Derek and Maria some unexpected news. They wouldn't say why or how, but they had ruled out the Langfords as suspects entirely. The Broadduses were stunned. They had recently told the prosecutors 
that they planned to file civil charges against the Langfords and wondered if they were lying to prevent the story from blowing up again. Left without a suspect, the Broadduses pressed on with their personal investigation. They were still coy about sharing too much with their neighbors, who remained in the pool of suspects, but spent an afternoon walking the block with a picture of the watcher's handwritten envelope. They hoped someone might recognize the writing from a Christmas card, but to no avail. After hiring handwriting experts, forensic linguists, and even an honest-to-goodness hacker, they were left with only dead ends. The police weren't having any better luck. A year after the fact, it was hard to find fresh leads, and the initial police canvas had been so porous that it had missed a significant clue. Around the same time that the Broadduses had received their first letter, another family on the boulevard got a similar note from the watcher. The parents of that family had lived in their house for years, and their kids were grown, so they threw the letter away just as the Woodses had. But after the news broke, one of the children posted about it on Facebook, then deleted the post. When investigators spoke to the family, they confirmed that the letter had been similar to the Broadduses, but its existence only made the case more confusing. After a handful of cold leads and the media attention dying down, Chablis dropped the case. While the Broadduses continued to be consumed by stress and fear, for the rest of Westfield, the story became little more than a creepy urban legend. A house to walk by on Halloween if you were brave enough. No one who had lived in the house before the Woodses could recall anything unusual, and it was hard for people to imagine that their idyllic neighborhood could be host to something so sinister. The Broadduses were suddenly outcasts, not only from their home but also from their town. Derek wanted to leave Westfield, but Maria insisted on not uprooting their kids. Two years after the Watcher's letters arrived, the Broadduses borrowed money from their family members to buy a second home in Westfield, using an LLC to keep the location private. But staying in town was stressful. The first time Maria let her daughter go to the pool with friends, she stared at the tracker on her daughter's iPhone the whole time. Meanwhile, the Broadduses still had to figure out what to do with 657 Boulevard. Their lawsuit was pending but seemed unlikely to succeed. They pursued a plan to demolish the house and build two new houses in its place. The planning board, with over 100 residents in attendance, shot down the idea immediately. Not long after the planning board's decision, however, the Broadduses finally got some good news. A family with grown children and two big dogs had agreed to rent 657 Boulevard. The renter told the Star-Ledger he wasn't worried about the watcher, though he had a clause in the lease that let him out in case of another letter. Two weeks later, Derek went to 657 to deal with squirrels that had taken up residence in the roof. The renter handed him an envelope that had just arrived. Violent winds and bitter cold... To the vile and spiteful Derek and his wench of a wife, Maria. This letter, two and a half years after the Watcher appeared, came out of nowhere. It was dated February 13th, the day the Broadduses gave depositions in their lawsuit against the Woodses. You wonder who the Watcher is? Turn around, idiots, the letter read. Maybe you even spoke to me, one of the so-called neighbors who has no idea who the Watcher could be. Or maybe you do know and are too scared to tell anyone. Good move. 
The letter was less stylish and more wrathful than the others. It seemed the writer had been closely following the story. They had seen the media coverage. I walked by the news trucks when they took over the neighborhood and mocked me. Derek's surreptitious investigatory efforts. I watched as you watched from the dark house in an attempt to find me. Telescopes and binoculars are wonderful inventions. And the attempt to tear down the house. 657 Boulevard survived your attempted assault and stood strong with its army of supporters barricading its gates. The letter read, My soldiers of the Boulevard followed my orders to a T. They carried out their mission and saved the soul of 657 Boulevard with my orders. All hail the Watcher! The renter was mentioned. He was spooked, but agreed to stay if the Broadduses installed cameras around the house. The letter indicated revenge could come in many forms. Maybe a car accident. Maybe a fire. Maybe something as simple as a mild illness that never seems to go away, but makes you fall sick day after day after day after day after day. Maybe the mysterious death of a pet? Loved ones suddenly die. Planes and cars and bicycles crash. Bones break. While this felt like a setback emotionally, there was hope that the new letter would provide new evidence for the investigation that was still ongoing after two and a half years. Unfortunately, this did not prove to be the case. And so they simply had to move on. The Broadduses no longer live in ever-present fear that the Watcher might strike at any moment, but they continue to deal with lingering effects from the letters. They have a new tenant at 657, but the rent doesn't cover the mortgage. They do their best to avoid those neighbors who are quick to accuse them of foul play. In the end, the Watcher had been obsessed with 657 Boulevard, and Derek had become obsessed with the Watcher and everything the letters had set in motion. In a final letter, the Watcher encapsulated both their motivation and triumph. You are despised by the house, and the Watcher has won. Welcome, campers, to Campfire Tales of the Strange and Unsettling. Tonight, you are hosted by myself, Ryan, co-host, Jordan. You completely fucked me up, and now the debrief. <laughs> now the debrief. I wasn't ready for that at all. <laughs> I didn't know we were going full NPR. So, Jordan, might I ask, how are you on this fine evening? I'm doing great. Thank I'm you. Doing great. <laughs> You're fucking welcome. <laughs> and that'll be all the questions for now. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Tonight, we have a story. Mystery? Maybe. Terrifying, you betcha. This is the story of the Watcher. That's right, the Watcher. I'm not jumping on your. And that'll do it for this. Oh, I'm not jumping on your NPR bandwagon. <laughs> All right, so let's discuss this episode. I like how you really, uh, you really work to keep things fresh. I appreciate that. Fresh till death. <laughs> That's a T-shirt. Fresh till death. Dude, so uh, you 
oddly, in a strange turn of events, you're, you might be more familiar with this story than I was. I mean, you definitely were before I started I mean, researching. Yeah. They made a whole Netflix show about it. Yeah. I don't Netflix. <laughs> I, it came out like over a year ago, a year, at least a year ago, maybe, maybe even more. It was, yeah. I mean, it was great. Like it was super, super, super popular. Nice. Um, and yeah, I mean, lo and behold, there's this whole side story about it. After uh, after watching the series, I deep dove into just reading articles and stuff about the actual story and yeah. uh, kind of similarities and differences and stuff like that. So, yeah. It's, it's uh, a crazy story. It's super crazy. What's weird to me is I originally, I originally had this on like... A, you know a sub list within my list of potential topics under um urban legends right which it, they talk about this and in, in reference to it being an urban legend all the time but they're fucking like real documented i mean yeah it's, shit that it went, you legitimately know I mean? happened right and i don't think of like mass media coverage of an event as an urban legend is I that think weird? I think it's probably probably in the I guess summed up in the you know the genre niche whatever of urban legends just due to how crazy of a story is and how terrifying at the same time it is. Yeah. But there was never actually anyone caught. I I don't yeah, was, I mean I get that, but I, mean, I think I, of urban I legends as being like mostly unsubstantiated. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, I I understand that too. Yeah. Like, when you think about, like, Crybaby Bridge. I mean, yeah. And shit, like, ideas like that, right? Like, that's an urban legend to me. Right. It's some vague story about someone throwing a baby off a bridge or something. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, there's no details. There's no... You can't go find an article about it happening, you know? Right, exactly. They're all kind of based off of something in passing that was turned into a story in itself. And yeah, unlike this, being... Yeah, I mean yeah. something that legitimately happened and was documented was a well documented. Ten years ago. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. I don't I don't consider this an urban legend. Eh. I mean, maybe yeah. if you live in that neighborhood and you're a ten year old kid, you know what I mean? Right. Like Yeah, they I tell the story see, like, of the watcher to scare yeah. you know, scare your friends. Yeah. I mean, you know, at the same time, do we know that it is legitimate? No, we do not. No. Exactly. So I mean I have I have some theories for oh, sure. Yeah, I'm sure I'm sure yeah. we'll get into it. But I think like that's also part of maybe in it falling falling in the lines of urban legend, but Yeah, I, I can see that. I don't know. It seems a little I can't say it's it's too crazy to be an urban legend, but it seems like too I don't know, too too legit, like too legit to quit. Yeah. It is far too legit to quit. <laughs> I um my favorite part of of um, researching for this was the Reddit threads. Oh, I'm <laughs> sure. I, I'm sure there's uh, there's a lot of a lot of Reddit threads with a lot to say. Yeah, as there is pretty, about everything. They're pretty fucking hilarious. Like people tried to web sleuth the shit out of this, and uh, to no avail. Yeah, yeah. It's awesome. Um, there's like a whole. There's a whole, like, subreddit devoted just to, like, pictures people have taken of the house and, like, Google Maps Street View. Stuff like people people are convinced that the Google Maps Street View of this house shows a car parked in front of it. 
with a guy sitting in the car holding a camera. I was hoping you were going to say he was sitting in a car holding a typewriter. (laughs) 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 Caught you red-handed. He's outside (laughs) just typing away. Click, 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 click. (laughs) I see you have fresh blood. That's my favorite thing ever. (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) You know... Yeah, bitch, I'm outside. (laughs) People have... People have really slept on the mobility aspects of a typewriter. Yeah. Like, you don't have to plug that shit in. No. You can take it and use it anywhere. (laughs) It's just as convenient as taking your laptop, your MacBook, whatever else with you. More convenient. You don't even have to charge it. Yeah, you don't have to charge it, but it might be, it might weigh 50 pounds. That doesn't matter. Yeah. That's just exercise. Exactly. If you're going to fucking go out in the middle of nowhere and, you know write a novel fucking walden style you're gonna want to bring a typewriter bud my goal is to write a novel in a tent yeah with three typewriters you're gonna need at least three i'm gonna write one (laughs) chapter on one one chapter on another one chapter on another and i'm gonna just rotate back and forth yeah Yeah. that's fair see which one inspires me the best yeah yeah should get typewriters from different eras well yeah like an early 80s typewriter a 60s typewriter you know, one I of those, a, like, big plastic case typewriters from, like, a secretary would have used in yeah. the 60s. I have yeah. a, a royal uh, a royal one right now that's legit. Nice. Been restored and everything, and yeah, it's awesome. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> that's what we just did. It's too legit. But, like, if you look at this picture, the Google Maps Street View of this guy, uh-huh. you, you can't see a fucking thing. It's all, you know, it's just like every Google Maps. It's all pixely. Yeah. And you you can't tell if he's holding anything or not. I'm sure somebody has like a, like, a di- you know, like a digitally remastered picture right. that they've, they've like, like upscaled up the contrast and, and yeah. he's there with his like bulky ass typewriter, his binoculars, <laughs> his like cell phone or no, sorry, car phone straight out of the 90s. Yeah. Yeah. This guy, this guy, he knows. He knows what he's doing. He's the watcher. Writer studio. Yeah, he is a watcher. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my favorite. One of my fa- another of my favorite things. Um, and we talked about it a little bit off mic. Is the random ass suggestions that investigators make to the family throughout? Yeah, like, uh, <laughs> and and that shit always happens. Like, yeah. They're like, I, I wonder if he watched that Keanu Reeves movie. Maybe that's where he got yep. the idea. He probably and just played a lot of video games and liked it, so he decided <laughs> to start acting it out. Yeah. They um they also another investigator suggested to them that he might be a big Game of Thrones guy. <laughs> like w- the watchers on the wall. Oh, you geez. know? Yeah. That whole like idea. Like the Night's Watch. Yeah. <laughs> It's just so silly. That's and, absurd. Like, we probably went camping three weekends ago. <laughs> yeah, but I went camping. One. Apparently, I'm apparently you got camping mind, on the brand. Yeah. Um, my favorite of all of these, though, the dude that they hired, the private investigator they hired, um, and there's one point where he sees a car stop in front of the house, and in his words it lingered long enough to make him suspicious. Okay. Right? So he writes down the plates. He traces it back to a woman who lives a town over. He interviews the woman. 
And she tells him that her boyfriend used to live in that neighborhood, right? Um, and I, I, I have to have the quote. It's so ridiculous, dude. Is she like an older lady, a younger lady? No, younger, for okay. sure. She's a younger lady. Um, basically, he she tells him that her boyfriend used to live in the, in the neighborhood and that he played lots of, quote, dark video games. <laughs> See? Yeah. One, and he said... He used the, to play the shit out of Driver when he was, like, 13. <laughs> well, the the private investigator says, like, in the interview, he says, in my recollection, one of those video games, he played a character specifically named The Watcher. And I was like, this is such an obvious misidentification of The Witcher. Well, yeah, maybe. 100%. Yeah. Come on. Probably. 2014. I mean... She's like, my boyfriend plays dark video games like The Witcher. She said, The Witcher, then it would be The Witcher, I'm sure. I'm saying, but it was his memory, like... Yeah. That it was The Watcher. You know yeah. what I mean? And I mean, it's easy. It's easy to, you know... Yeah. Sounds similar. It's Yeah, it's just funny, though, that they can, like, just mishear one word yeah. and have, like, a whole thread to follow. He might have been playing, no like, a clothes washing simulator called The Washer. <laughs> the Washer. It could have been The Washer. <laughs> could have been a power washing simulator. I actually was playing this, uh, this game for a minute uh, about you inherit a laundromat that you slowly develop and turn into an arcade. That sounds amazing. Yeah, it's pretty fantastic <laughs> extremely repetitive like but it's, yeah. it's cool there's one where you do a gas station yeah where you like rehab a gas station and have to run it nice. so good i, I believe like, it's called gas station simulator <laughs> <laughs> but i like this one because you slowly turn it into like this like super retro arcade that yeah eventually you do away with the laundromat and it just turns into a giant arcade yeah, that's cool. Yeah. I mean, coin-operated businesses, right? But I, I like to refer to that one as the washer. Yeah. I'm the washer. That's that's, that's probably what he was talking about. <laughs> um, So on the internet, you know, through Reddit threads, they have... The interwebs. They have tons of different theories okay. on this, obviously. The big ones that I noticed were a jilted lover, like a mistress... If the dude had a mistress, maybe I mean, she was fucking with him. I could see that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, does it mean he just turned 40? He's, uh, yeah. he's, has a pretty, you know, good job. He's made a good amount of money at this point. Probably works late yeah. hours. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I don't that's, think that's too far, too far off. Yeah. Not that there's any evidence of that. Right. Of course. It just, that's just a, I mean, one of the ideas. Just a random theory. Yeah. Yeah. There's also the idea of a spurned realtor. So they actually went through like four or five different realtors before they settled on one. Right. So there was a thought that they pissed someone off and they, you know. Yep. This just seems like such a bizarre route to go. That's one of the more popular someone. ones, though. Yeah. And I mean, honestly, what better way to deter the family away than some pissed off person that they didn't choose or didn't end up working with whatever else maybe they'll get their business again yeah they'll come crying back you know and yeah if they go back on the market to look exactly. for another house yeah it's weird i mean it, it just weird. seems like it's so weird to come to that like you know what i'll do 
people I'll do people this. are surprising. Yeah. You know, like of what they what they will do and yeah, how they will do it to accomplish what they want. That's true. That's true. People are wildly it is, creative. Yeah, it's crazy. There's also the idea that it was a local student's creative writing project. Yes, I I, I saw I've I've seen that one too. Yeah, yeah. Because wasn't there um wasn't there like a teacher that had them write about like uh, write to houses or write about houses or something? Right. Yeah. Um, yep. Yeah. So I mean, that would be a messed up creative writing project. It's a pretty um, performance art. Style yeah, but I feel like thing for a high schooler. At some point, that is, it's it's almost like threatening, right? Yeah, it gets very threatening. So I feel like if you're going about it that way, then you're just asking to get into trouble if you get caught. I mean. I think about it like this. So say the student starts out the the writing project like this and he just keeps going on his own, right? Like maybe the first part was the was him just doing a his Welcome. you know idea yeah. for a yeah. And then he just kept going with it and it kept escalating because no one was, you know, no one cared anymore. Yeah. I mean, you know, maybe they were trying to see how far they could take it to, like, yeah. really just try to mess with the person. I don't know. Maybe they got they got off on that. Like, yeah, that's possible. Yeah, could have been for sure. Mm-hmm. There's also theories that this was like guerrilla marketing for a horror movie that never actually came out. That would be cool. I, I mean, yeah. there's like just just as uh, we talked about and um, where was it? No Mal, uh, no Alaska, when they were doing that, uh, the fourth kind movie, yeah, and they started using all these like disappearances that have been in the area over the last like how many years, whatever, yeah, and chalking them up to alien abductions as a way to market the film and make it seem more real and stuff like that. Like, yeah, I mean that that stuff works, it works does. extremely it really does. well. It's kind of a bummer, but it does. Yeah, it really does arc. So um, I, I mean that that's actually pretty cool. I like that. I like that idea. The uh, my favorite my favorite theory of all of the the ones that I found on Reddit was the idea that this was quote mall goths having fun. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Nice. So kind of the same kind of the same theory as the high school writing project, but without the project. Like, mall goths will be mall goths. Yeah. yeah, they're literally just <laughs> fucking with people for fun. <laughs> that, that's pretty awesome too. I, that one I'm not feels gonna rule very that one likely. Out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that it really was just like a fucked up just teenager trolling. fucking exactly. with people. Yeah, yeah. I yep. mean, it's it, that, and that's such a popular thing these days. Yeah. Uh, just trolling somebody, trolling somebody just to piss them off. And I think young people now having like lived their entire life with the internet they think of they think of like physical mail as being less like less risky than doing something online you know what i mean like i mean it's harder to get caught if you send someone a physical piece of mail than it is to like fuck with someone i mean yeah that's that's technically true no return address like they use gloves, they typewrite it, like there's no way to trace that yeah. back to anything. 
you know? Yep. And drop it off. I mean, shit, drop it off at like a post, you know, a town or two away. Yeah. Nobody, nobody would ever know or anything. That was the big thing that the police kept like trying to explain to them was like the, the letter itself provides nothing. Yeah. Like there's no way for us to trace this back from where it came from to where it came from. It's literally just kind of watch and wait and see who happens to deliver the next one or. Yeah. Yeah. Like they know based on, based on the, um, post office that it came from. Right. They know that it was mailed from somewhere in northern New Jersey. That's all they know. Like, that's crazy. Let's compare that to how you can, like, trace back an IP address. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, Easy. Yeah. I mean, I can literally pull anybody's IP address that I yeah. I chat with or whatever else. Like, extremely easy. So, yeah. Yep. Like, that, I, I, I get that. I get that way of thinking. You know, we're yeah, in so the maybe- digital age, so... Maybe this was just uh, the safer way to internet bully someone. <laughs> Maybe that's how they saw it. <laughs> that's terrible, you know what I mean? though. Yeah, it really but is. Again, people will go through, go to some lengths to yeah. to troll somebody or mess with somebody or bully somebody for that matter. Yeah, and Molgoths will be Molgoths. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. And honestly, of course, the biggest suspect in all this is the family themselves. Yeah. That's yep. that's like the, the number one theory bouncing around the internet, for sure. And when it comes to that, I I think a big question is, like, is the fact that they never moved into the house, is that a sign of guilt? Like, did they plan the whole thing? A lot of people point to that. Like, but at what cost? Or were though? they actually scared? Like, if they planned this out, what what was their end goal? Because technically they technically they made a lot of money off this. But did they? Yeah. So they what? refinanced their home twice in three years that so, they never lived in. Because that that conflicts with a lot of stuff I've read. Like a lot that I've read said that they bought it at like the one point three or one point four million. And then may have been refinanced at some point, but ended up taking a huge cut, like a huge cut or a huge loss on it. Even, okay, so, so yeah, I've, no. I've seen a few different versions too. Yeah. So um, even if they took a loss, that very well could have been because their plan didn't work. Okay. Right? Maybe. So they're, the thing that they try to do after they attempt to sell it a bunch of times and it or for a while and it fails the thing that they attempt to do was they want to level the house split the lot and build two like cookie cutter houses right on the lot and sell those and if they could have done that they would have made a fuckload of profit right i mean maybe are they are they able to make two one you know at least even even one million dollar homes or even a five hundred thousand dollar home like and then that's the thing is they were going to sell it to a developer to do that. So if, if they were allowed to do that, but they had to go to this board to get approval for it to be split, um, in order to sell it to a developer with that plan in mind. Yeah. So that's, they were going to make like a lot more money selling to a developer with that has that plan locked in. Okay. But the board shut them down. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So they couldn't do that. It just I tend I don't I was gonna say to me it just I feel like 
they're almost setting themselves up for failure at that point. Yeah. So I feel like what would be, you know, what what are they trying to gain? And what did they ultimately gain? You know, maybe not I mean, I that think much. They fucked up. I, I yeah. obviously, yeah. One of the, I mean, one of the checks on the they were victims side of the board definitely is the fact that they spent an insane amount of money trying to figure this out. Yeah. Like a lot. Right. They hired private detectives. They paid lab fees. They hired like handwriting experts and forensic linguists. And so if this is all, all just shit. them doing this. Right. <laughs> that's a lot of wasted money. That's a lot obviously. of wasted money and a lot of wasted time and effort to yeah. ultimately achieve nothing. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's a big check on, on the side of they didn't do it. Right. Yeah, I, I definitely, I don't, I don't, I don't agree. There's with that. also the Langfords. I mean, the weird yeah. family next door, and that was that was what they they put a big focus on in the like the actual Netflix show. Oh, is it? What? Yeah, they thought that they were, you know, they were kind of that crazy couple, and eventually they're like holding this um housing committee, neighborhood committee, whatever, and they end up getting like a bunch of people involved, and yeah, it, they. I won't. I won't go there. So you can maybe eventually watch the show. Yeah. So I mean, if you're reporting on the episode, you should check it out. The show's actually really good, and obviously overplayed yeah. versus the the story. Yeah. But I feel like it's definitely worth a watch. Um. But yeah, they were like. I mean, they were thought to be one of the prime suspects in in the show. Yeah. They focused on them mostly during the actual police investigation and the the. The investigation that they yeah. paid for, that the family paid for. Um, and then, of course, they find out that Michael Langford was diagnosed with schizophrenia. And he was sort of known for doing lots of weird shit. Yeah. Um, but the, like, established neighbors in the that had been there a while loved him. Like, everyone said that he would never be able to do that. In the true, in the real story, I don't know if you found anything. Did he ever actually end up in the house at all? No. Okay. No. All right. I I imagine they dramatize quite a bit of I mean, it yeah, for the show, of right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's another consideration. I, I'm i pretty sure whoever developed that Netflix series had to pay the family for their story. I'm, I, I'm sure of it. Yeah. So yeah. maybe in They're, the end they got what they, they really then? wanted. But, you know. Yeah. That's fair. <laughs> one day, <laughs> one day Netflix will buy us out. I can I mean, feel that's it. what... <laughs> Honestly, that's what neighbors were talking about immediately. It was like these people are just after like movie rights. They just want to create wanted a crazy story that would blow up in the media that they could sell for movie rights. I mean, that's a fantastic premise for a horror movie. Yeah. Especially if something ended up happening and this watcher does finally like right. You know, go forth with what he claims that he can do. Yeah. Dude, some of those letters are <laughs> Turn creepy. Around. <laughs> I just love that. The Watcher won. Yeah. It's a great finish. I mean, yeah. It's like, it's it just, it's like the whole time he's just been toying with them. Yeah. Like, the, basically he tells them, like, you gave up. I won. Yeah. Exactly. Which kind of steps on his whole premise, though, if you think yeah. about it. Because he's, he wants them in the house. Like, most of the letters are, like, encouraging them to be in the house. call upon that young blood whenever he needs to, or do with whatever how he chooses to do so with the family or you know whatever i like 
I like how he managed to be incredibly threatening without ever actually describing what he's going to do. Oh, yeah. You know what I, I mean? But, I mean, at the same time, think of that as your children, first of all. Like, if you were to, like... Yeah. Oh, there's, you know, like, whatever. I, I, don't, I don't even know an example because I don't really think like that. But, you know, like, just to say, oh, that young blood, like, they'll, you know, when I call upon them, they will come, basically, sort of thing. Yeah. Like, that's... Yeah. That's, yeah. that's a little 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 weird. It's super um, fucking creepy. That's what it is. It is. And yeah. it, I mean, it makes this guy come off like a total total creeper. Yeah. Child the, predator, whatever, whatever you yep. name it. That's like yeah. that's what this guy sounds like. As a parent, of course, immediately that's what's going to be in your head. You know what I mean? Like, and like the moment in the letters that freaked me out the most was when he's talking about who's going to be in what bedrooms. Yeah. And he's like says something to the effect of like i'll find out eventually it'll be helpful to know it'll make it easier to plan yeah that too right Ugh, shivers that's so fucking creepy dude yeah and these are like i mean these aren't like grown kids no they're little kids yeah 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 and then i know that it turns out they end up finding out that there's uh, like two sexual predators that live nearby in in the area right yep so like I mean immediately you find something like that your mind's gonna go right there yeah you know and and start tar- targeting those people regardless like yeah yep and I mean another curveball they get hit with is the fact the only DNA that gets hit that they get hit on from any of the envelopes is female right yeah and of course when you think you know creepers immediately you think it's a dude yeah of course I mean it's you know that's been the most. Just- consistent and most common thing right yeah it's just occam's but razor it does like, go if someone's both ways. a creep there yeah, yeah it's true it's just so much rarer for women to be to get involved in shit like this yeah and we're an all-inclusive um, show so <laughs> yeah ladies don't you sure. do it either or anyone else that's right oh. i'm one of the things that freaked me out doing the like one of the things that was brought up was by the neighbors when when it really all started coming out, the neighbors told the newspaper, like, if this was such a deep investigation, such like a an all like because the police came out and said, like, we we had a thorough investigation and couldn't find yeah. couldn't figure it out. And the neighbors were like, they never even talked to us. Yeah. See, I mean, like, and I how know, could it be? I was going to say, I know that they told him not to tell the neighbors, not to, like, you know. Yeah, basically start throwing this around. But if they did an investigation, yeah, yeah, you would talk to the people closest by. Yeah, it it doesn't make sense. Not at all. I mean the na- the neighbors literally go to the newspaper and they're like, "How clearly this wasn't the deep investigation they claim it is because n- they haven't talked to any of us." Yeah, like they did some shit with the Langfords, like showed them the letters. They did a couple, but like most, the vast majority of the neighbors, even the people inside like the sight lines for the back porch and all Mm -hmm. that shit, they were never spoken to by the police at all, which is very strange. It's, it is. And it's off-putting that if, if a job, if an investigation was in fact performed, done, whatever, like if you're not reaching out to anyone close by that, that almost seems like maybe the police were involved. Yeah, it's weird. Maybe the police were the watchers. It's weird, right? 
I don't... I mean, the thing is, like, I think it's easy to... It's easy to say, like, what the fuck when you see how, like, surface level the investigation clearly was. Right. But, like, we have to remember that no matter how intriguing the mystery is, like, this wasn't a murder. It wasn't a sexual assault. It was a guy dropping letters in the mail. Yeah. Like... True. So, at most, this was a stalking case. Yeah. More likely, they thought of it as harassment. I mean, that's... So... That's what I would... I would say. Yeah. Pretty low on their priority mm. list. You know what I mean? So, yeah, they probably weren't canvassing the entire neighborhood and doing extensive interviews with people. And, like, it was just a, a harassment case, you know? Then basically saying they're doing something and do the opposite. Yeah. Or just dismiss it and say, hey, we don't have time. You know, we don't have time for this. Yeah. I imagine a lot of it was who gives a shit. <laughs> You know what I mean? You're 40. Get it together, man. Right? It's a fucking letter. Throw it away like everybody else did. (laughs) I mean, honestly, that's another thing that stuck out to me was when they find out that another neighbor received a letter the same around the same time they received their first letter. That neighbor, just like the fucking the woods who sold them the house, when they got the letter, they just threw it away and never heard from him again. So you wonder if whoever the guy is, or whoever the person is, excuse me, could be a lady. Whoever the person is, maybe they were just, like, sending letters out to see who would bite. You know what I mean? Like, who's going to make a big deal out of this, and that's the person I'll keep fucking with. I mean, you know, that's possible, too, but it's very, very specific. Like, unless they're being just this ultimate creepo... It's like watching all these houses, watching who who they're calling for, listening, you like trying to look in at all the windows. I mean that that is that's that's pretty creeper status. That's absolutely stalker status. And yeah. I mean that could be predator status as well. Yeah, um, it could get dangerous very exactly. quickly. Exactly. So I mean I highly doubt it's somebody just throwing letters out and see what sticks. Because I mean I'm, it's just weird. Yeah, I don't don't know. That just doesn't make sense to me. It's just weird to me that like that other people got very similar letters. Like the other person in the neighborhood didn't get a letter about the Broadus's house. They got a letter about their own house. Yeah, that was very similar. You know, so like maybe when the Broadus's like their instant their instant reaction was call the police, make a big deal out of this. Maybe the dude was like, "All right, here we go." Maybe this is just a form of hazing. The new new <laughs> neighbors, neighbors. Right. Yeah. The new neighbors in town, like, you know, in the neighborhood. Let's just yeah. mess with them. You know? We do this sure. to everybody. <laughs> and at the yeah. end we all have a big ass barbecue and joke about it. Like, you know, like <laughs> Yeah. No big deal. Uh and they just took Who's it, the watcher you know? <laughs> this week? <laughs> <laughs> me, me, I want to be the watcher. Yeah. Maybe. Uh, I never get to be the watcher. <laughs> <laughs> Jordan <laughs> and that's how that's that right. would work right yeah yep if you were wanting to be the watcher and you didn't get to be just yeah. make sure that that's you know that's established <laughs> thanks so there's also a weird thing that happened yeah the and I'm just gonna read you this from it comes straight from a news article about it okay so it says The Watcher was no longer the only person sending anonymous letters in Westfield. 
last Christmas Eve, so this would have been Christmas Eve 2017. Okay. Several families received an envelope in their mailboxes. They'd been delivered by hand to the homes of people who had been the most vocal in criticizing the Broadduses online. One of them, who lived a few blocks down on Boulevard, had written on Facebook, quote, I wish we could go back to the days of tar and feathers. I have just the couple in mind. Jeez. Another family who got the letter told me it was, quote, weirdly poetic, as the Watchers had been, and that it accused the families of speculating inaccurately about the Broadduses. It included several stories about recent acts of domestic terrorism in which the signs of brewing mental illness had gone unnoticed. The typed letters were signed, Friends of the Broadus Family. The, the people who received the letters didn't know who sent them, but the tone had a familiar ring to me. This is the guy who had been, he did like a deep investigation okay. of it for, for, a, for an article. When I asked Derek Broadus whether he had written them, he paused for a moment, then admitted he had. He wasn't proud of it. He hadn't even told his wife, and said they were the only anonymous letters he had written. But he had felt driven to his wit's end, fed up with watching silently as people threw accusations at his family based on practically nothing. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I understand to a degree. You know, he's trying to figure out something that that he can do and try and make his family no longer the laughing stock of the neighborhood or the area, whatever else, right? Yeah. But there's... I think it's a terribly misguided effort, though. <laughs> Extremely, yeah. <laughs> it's counterproductive there, Derek. There is one thing I have to agree on, is talking, like, how poetic the Watcher's letters are. Uh-huh. Extremely. Yeah. Very poetic. They're... Yeah. Like downright flowery, at times. extremely. Yeah, it's <laughs> like I, I, I don't know. And then, like you, like you had mentioned uh, before we started recording, how many times he says the address in yes, the letters too, over and over and over again. Yeah, it's a pain in the ass to recite, uh-huh. but at the same time, that's all part of the, the way poetry. he exactly. Yep, the way that he approached it and addressed it. So yeah. Yeah, it is. There's something yeah. poetic about it for sure. It's interesting, man. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know what it is. O- obviously, like conventional wisdom would see him, Derek, writing these letters, and they sound kind of like the original letters. And it's like, well, if you're like, maybe this is your jam, writing weird letters and <laughs> dropping them in mailboxes. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, personally. I think the theory that makes the most sense is that this was like a a terribly failed attempt to to um to split the property and sell it to a to a development company. You think so? I do. Okay. I think the whole the whole thing. The fact that they just kept renovating even though they weren't going to move in like even after they decided they weren't going to move in, they at, just kept doing renovations at and At that shit. point they knew that they were going to have to sell. Yeah. So but, why not put the money, the the time? They're already halfway in it. If they're going to try and sell it as as is partially renovated, they're not going to get as much out of it, and you know, as if they would if they continue and finish it off, right? Yeah, but they're also at the same time crying because they're broke. They're borrowing money from their family to yeah. buy another house, and they just keep pouring money into renovations. Imagine just being like, hey. Uh, we need to buy another house, and your family just like, yeah, here, here, here yeah, just buy right? a house. 
I mean, that, I don't know. To me, that seems unheard of, but maybe that's common yeah. practice, you know? I mean, these people throw money around like it's nothing. Yeah. It's, it's wild. That, that is, that is super wild to me. The amount of affluence in this story, it makes my stomach sick. Like, there isn't a single yeah. person in this story that isn't, like, disgustingly wealthy. Yeah, oh, without a doubt. I mean, and as as mentioned, this Westfield area yep. is an extremely posh area, right? Yeah, it's in the top 100 wealthiest towns in America. See? Jeez, man. Makes it kind of tough to feel bad for them, doesn't it? I mean, <laughs> as terrible as that sounds. Yes, it's true, I, though. Let me preface by saying that. As terrible yeah. as that sounds, yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah, for sure, it really does. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've covered so many stories of these like financially beat down families who move into this these houses and they have terrible hauntings and I mean awful the things one that possession, happen. The one possession where they couldn't move out because they couldn't afford anything, so they yeah. endured all this shit for several years. years after the fact. Yep, I mean, and then you have these people that are just. Yeah, throwing money out like it's nothing, and you know this whole okay, whining about some it, letters. I know. Just to put it in perspective, this entire story takes place in about a span of three years. Right. Right. In that three years, this couple owns three million dollar homes. Yeah. They live in one in the in the beginning, and they're living there while you know while renovating this one, and then. Continuing to renovate this one, they buy a third house to move into, mm-hmm. all in this Westfield area. And that's where, like, in one of his first letters, basically saying, was it greed that brought you brought you here, yeah. right? Yeah. Right. A yeah. thousand percent. It's just so hard for me to relate to them in oh, any I, way. I, I know. That's, <laughs> yeah. Us lowly mis- Midwesterners are, you know, yeah. I mean... The majority of, of I'm sure people that listen to this show you yeah. know, can relate. Like it's that's not I mean that's not the com like the that's not the norm. Yeah. You know, it's if just, you're in your if you're in your thirties in twenty twenty three, like the best of us are still scrambling to try to be middle class. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Living paycheck to paycheck, it's still a thing, you know? It's yeah. absolutely yeah, it just that 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 does irks me a bit yeah it kind of just makes me not like anybody in the whole story (laughs) like i understand like you get what you pay for like yeah hey it fit i think it fit this time it did almost (laughs) it almost did i'm still trying (laughs) uh um it just like yeah it makes I know you shouldn't dislike people because they're successful. No, of obviously, not. like you should, it's not that you should. It's just hard to feel for sympathy for their situation. Else. Right. Yeah, 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 sure. But it, yeah, it's hard to feel sympathy for their situation when, to me, I would much rather have as mu- have their money and be harassed by letters in the mailbox. Yeah, I'll take that. I'd trade my situation for that. Send all the letters you want. <laughs> You know what I mean? Let me enjoy this million dollar home with my family. We'll be happy. Don't worry about it. Yeah. I'll even write you back here and there. Let you know how we're (laughs) doing. Just in case you can't see it. Pen pals. We'll even post like pictures of us out there. You know, we'll put them out on our front lawn. How happy we are. Perfect. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe one day we'll invite you over for a cuppa. You know, like it's fine. Yeah. 
<laughs> oh, Christ, dude. <laughs> yeah. I, I I I I know I know what you mean. You know. What's your what what do you like pick a theory? What do you think? Like what what feels right to you? Like I I find it really hard to buy into them doing this. Them, you know, creating this thing. Um Yeah. I think there probably was someone out there. Maybe maybe an old resident that always wanted the home but could never afford it sure and the fact that they maybe they they themselves are poor or struggling or you know just not as wealthy whatever you know yeah and they've always wanted this home like it was always their their goal their dream to go back to this home and they just could never be able to afford it or get there yeah so they're gonna you know of course try to blast anybody that can yeah you know i I feel like that seems that seems maybe i don't know to me like that seems very possible okay maybe that's just a random random thought but yeah the old troll theory yeah i mean basically yeah Mm -hmm. yeah i honestly other than them doing it themselves the okay so if i was gonna write the movie it would be something that they hit on for a moment and it seems like they kind of gave up on but the idea that maybe the son of an old housekeeper or some like a someone who as a boy experienced this big grand house and maybe became obsessed with it that too you know what i mean yeah yeah and that's that's yeah. another route that could go for sure yeah something like that makes sense to me yeah at least as far as like a narrative goes i think that that would be a pretty compelling one I don't know what's your what's your ultimate thought if you're not they, writing just a narrative, basically. Yeah, I think they did it. Okay. Yeah, That's I mean, the one that makes the most sense to me. I think they just did a bad job of it at the time. Like, I feel like they didn't have a whole lot to gain, but by now, I think they've probably gained everything that they had anticipated. Yeah. So maybe I just think they fucked it up. I think they fucked up in not getting the neighborhood on their side. Yeah. I'm, I think that's that's how they fucked up. I mean, a lot of these people in this neighborhood have been there for years. Yep. So yep. yeah, it's going to be hard to get <laughs> to get people <laughs> yeah. on your side. I mean, yeah. I mean, the neighborhood instantly saw this as a scam. Yeah. Instantly, that's why it got shut down so fast in the that board meeting because mm-hmm. that board in the in the like th- for in the five years surrounding that board meeting. They approved like a dozen other proposals where the lots were even smaller. And cuz that was the issue. That that was the issue they that they had with it was it yeah. was like 4 feet off from the minimum width that a lot had to be in that neighborhood. Okay. That's why they shut it down. But I think it's cuz they hated them. Yeah. <laughs> I think the other possibility is it's the neighbors and they didn't like this family moving out. in. Yep. Yep. Could be that too. Maybe they just rubbed them the wrong way instantly. Yeah. Yeah, I think I mean that that could also explain a lot of this and why they made them out to look like these crazy people, basically. Yeah, maybe it was like a team effort. Yep. Like everybody's out of the neighborhood. They're looking for the perfect neighbors. Sure. And this like very greedy family that just immediately comes in automatically like renovating this beautiful already like pristine property and yeah yeah you know, maybe maybe they just didn't like that 
fixing a bunch of shit that isn't broken. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that too. Maybe they're trying to like save or whatever the integrity of this like neighborhood and you know in all its yeah. glory. It's you know, there's um there are a lot of options here, and I think that's what I really liked about the yeah. story is like there you could write fifteen different movies. Oh, <laughs> without a doubt. And all go a different yeah. direction. <laughs> yeah. For sure. Yeah. I like it. I like it. I yeah, I think that's awesome. It's it's definitely a really cool story, if nothing else. Yeah. I mean, just the idea of this guy sitting outside in his car with his typewriter. Like, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like it, too, for our show, because it's very different. Like, nobody died. Nope. There's no paranormal stuff. Right. It's just a mystery. Yeah. Like, it's just a weird fucking thing that happened. But it's also creepy at the same time. Yeah, it is creepy. It is creepy. It, so but it's, it's sort of like for it. it's sort of like true crime without the death you know what yeah. i mean without the yeah. actual crime yeah yeah i feel that and every once every once in a while i stumble upon like a a true crime podcast that they only cover like uh like financial crimes or they cover like yeah. art yeah. theft and stuff like that you know like it's true crime but it's not blood and guts yeah it's like yeah it's very specific to yeah the type i guess yeah yeah huh. or there's one that covers like scam artists yeah you know and like yeah i like the idea but anyhow, of like art theft <laughs> yeah that's yeah i mean how it's many episodes can you get can you go with that dude i'm sure a there's lot. a lot yeah i'm sure <laughs> yeah. there are but it's like uh, uh it just top of my head i'm like huh that seems kind of out there. Yeah, the art That's theft cool. one I I've listened to a few times, and it's cool because it's very like historic. Yeah, podcasts because a lot of these took place in like you know the early 1900s or even farther back. So right. you get like a lot of you get a lot of history in that, those That's, stories. Too. I mean, that sounds awesome. Like it's it's yeah. a super cool premise. I dig it. It is. Yeah. Sweet. All right, and that concludes episode 115, The Watcher. Thank you, thank you, thank you. From the bottom of our weird, possibly alien, maybe ghostly, probably cryptid hearts for listening. We absolutely love having the chance to discuss all these wild creatures and events every week, and it's your continued attention that allows us to carry on. We want to get to know each and every one of you, so please come and check us out on all the socials. At campfire.tales.podcast on Instagram and Facebook at Campfire T-O-T-S-A-U on Twitter. And you can also visit our website at campfirepodcastnetwork.com. If you love the show, please rate and review it. It's what truly helps us continue bringing your weekly dose of the strange and unsettling. And a special thanks to Greg Martin at Reverent Music on Instagram for his contributions to the beautiful music that you hear every week under the debrief. You can find more of his tunes at ReverbNation.com slash Reverent. It's fantastic, fantastic stuff. Go give that a listen. And that's it. Until next time, I'm Ryan. I'm Jordan. And remember, campers, stay weird and trust in the unknown. unknown.